Most of you are probably familiar with the movie The Wizard of Oz. Much of the story develops, right, with great anticipation of seeing the wizard himself. While earlier descriptions of, of him in the film may seem promising, the closer Dorothy and her friends get to meeting him, the more they find themselves fearing him. The suspenseful moments of the movie surround this meeting of the smoky, fiery wizard and his demand, right, that they bring him the broom of the wicked witch. And they cower before this massive talking head that is in front of them. However, at the end of the movie, what happens? Off to the side of this talking head, a curtain is pulled back to reveal that it is just a man with tricks and technology. He's not to be feared, but they actually end up criticizing him for what he has done in creating fear within them and all these people. Now, all of this to say that when the curtain is pulled back and we begin to see behind the scenes of what is happening in a story, we tend to have a change within us, a shift happens. For Dorothy and her friends, fear became relief. Even anger, right, to some sense. But when we come to this familiar story this morning of Judas betraying Jesus in John's Gospel, we see John being very intentional to pull back the curtain for us. By Jesus' own words, and by some additional notes that are given by John, we find out that what to the disciples originally was a very fear-inducing situation becomes one that stirs their faith and is meant to stir our faith once all the details are revealed. As we see how God works, even in the midst of betrayal that leads to Jesus' own death, it should ultimately cause our own faith to be emboldened, to trust God to trust Jesus in the midst of any darkness, any suffering that we may even face. I'd like to begin our time this morning by reading a portion of Scripture that's not our main passage, but actually Jesus quotes this passage in our main passage. So it's found in Psalm 41. It'll be up there for you. It should be. Psalm 41, starting in verse 5, just to give us some context here, it says... My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. So David is expressing here in Psalm 41 a very real experience for him. An experience of his enemies are calling for his death. People whispering behind his back saying, I hope the worst happens to him. Even his very close friend, right? The one that he shared bread with is turning against him. 
But what we find out when we come to John chapter 13 is that this betrayal that David experienced actually points to a future betrayal as well. In the hundreds of years before Jesus took on flesh, Jesus with the Father knew David's experience of betrayal would be a repeated experience, but in an even greater manner when performed by Judas. So as we see behind the scenes of this betrayal today, I hope it bolsters your faith. Let's go ahead and read our main passage in John chapter 13. We're going to include a couple of verses from last week that kind of served as a transition at the end last week, but also serve helpful for us today. Starting in verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. So as we read through this passage, we see kind of three main characters playing roles in this scene of betrayal. Yes, Peter and John are involved, as well as the other disciples sitting around. But much of the details revolve around three main people. Judas, the devil, and Jesus. So we will take the first part of our time this morning to look at these Three and see what John specifically makes a point to tell us about these three. So first, let's start with Judas. Now, it may seem plain and simple. What really is there to learn about Judas that isn't straightforwardly told to us in this passage, right? Or from what many of us already know to be true about Judas and the whole situation. But it's important for us to take a moment to narrow in on Judas because as we look at behind the scenes of this betrayal, right, what do we see? We see Well, Satan was working on his heart. Satan entered Judas. Jesus knew that this was going to happen and told Judas to do this and to do it quickly. So what we can be tempted to do is to shift the blame off of Judas. We can be tempted to say, well, he had no control over his actions if Satan had entered him. It's not really his fault. And so I want to avoid that temptation. If it was known, all the way back in Psalm 41, 
that Judas was going to fulfill this and betray Jesus. Hundreds of years beforehand. And if the devil is influencing him in this moment of betrayal, could he really be the one to blame for what happens? And what we must realize is the answer to that question is a resounding yes. He is still responsible for the betrayal that he does. As we look at what we're already told in John's gospel and from other gospels, we see that Judas already, before any of this description here, is known as a pretender. Or you may want to use the word hypocrite. The point here is that he puts forward an appearance. He wants to portray something to the world that doesn't match who he truly is. He has put on a Christ-following mask to hide the fact that he really is, deep down, a self-centered, greedy man. Look at what we're told just a chapter before when Mary comes and anoints the feet of Jesus. We already studied this passage, but just a reminder, John 12 She anoints the feet of Jesus. And what does Judas say? Verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas pretends to care for the poor and condemns Mary's act of worship in the process. And then John gives us an additional note here, a behind-the-scenes look. Judas used to help himself to the money bag. So Judas has this image of all that he is, is for Jesus, right? I care for the poor. He even has the privilege of being the one to carry the money bag. But John reveals to us that he's just after the money. He slips it out of the bag and into his back pocket. So before any mention of Satan influencing Judas in chapter 13, we see Judas already described as a man who pretends, who really never was following Jesus with his heart. Matthew actually, when it comes to this same account of the betrayal, Matthew actually gives us some more information. When Jesus reveals that one of his disciples will betray him, all of, his, all of his disciples, one by one, begin to say what? Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Guess who plays along? Judas, knowing exactly what he's already arranged to do, what he's about to do, looks right at Jesus and says, Is it I? He's just playing the role, isn't he? He's just playing along, putting forward this mask time and time again. Kind of like, I don't mean to, I'm not calling anybody out in this room, but kind of like how I saw a large amount of posts of people who, surprisingly enough, became Bengals fans last week. (laughs) Before the game, not afterwards. It was crazy in the week or two leading up to it. How many people in this area start posting stuff about the Bengals that have never posted about the Bengals during the whole season? These people who randomly become, oh yeah, I love that quarterback, John Burrow. It's Joe Burrow, by the way, not John. 
I saw this video, right? And we all know these types of people. Of It's like they sit down for the Super Bowl party wearing the Bengals jersey and then the Rams score. And they're like, I got to go to the restroom. They come back wearing a Rams jersey, right? It's like this constant flipping and flopping back and forth. We all know people like that. And that's kind of like Judas here, isn't he? He's just putting on a mask. It's just like putting on a jersey. But we must remember that much like just putting on a jersey for one game doesn't make you a true fan, just being close to Jesus in proximity doesn't mean you have true faith. Just because you hear a lot of talk about Jesus, because you might talk a lot about Jesus, you might know a lot about Jesus, because you spend a lot of time in church, doesn't mean that you have authentically true faith. These examples of Judas in John and in Matthew provide us with evidence that Judas has absence of faith. And when someone doesn't respond with faith in Jesus, who's responsible? They are. When someone rejects Jesus, they're responsible for it. That's what we need to see here with Judas. He's a pretender. He's a hypocrite, which means he's responsible for his betrayal of Jesus. And Jesus actually makes this abundantly clear. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 24, listen to what he says about his own betrayal. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus makes a pronouncement of judgment upon the one who betrays him. Woe is upon him. It is better if he had never been born. A person doesn't receive judgment unless they're responsible for what's going on, except Jesus, right? Jesus is the only exception to that rule where he takes on our judgment even though he's not responsible for it. That's the only exception of the rule. When we receive any type of judgment, it's because of some sort of responsibility we have. So when Jesus says here, it's better for Judas if he had never been born than the judgment that he is going to receive for his betrayal. It's telling us Judas is to be held responsible. And I want us to remember that as we then go on to look at some more behind-the-scenes things with the devil and Jesus. Judas is to be held responsible. But let's go ahead and look at the next individual. We see the devil. Now we saw last week that the devil was out to get Jesus, right? He was deeply concerned about Jesus and how high Jesus' status was. Last week we saw that Jesus had been given all things into his hands by his Father. That he had come from the Father, he was about to go back to the Father. All of this describes how high Jesus' status was, and the devil is concerned about it. So much that he's maneuvering things and trying to work things in order to kill Jesus. Of course, little did he realize his attempt to eliminate Jesus was actually the very act that provides salvation and deliverance from the devil himself. But let's look at two specific ways the devil is working behind the scenes here. First, the devil influences Judas' heart. Now, we already saw, we, just from what we looked at, right, he already had a lot to work with. 
Judas already had a lot of sin already going on inside his heart that the devil had to work with. But look at what we specifically see in chapter 13, verse 2. We saw it last week. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. The devil put it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. Again, that doesn't mean Judas isn't responsible for his betrayal, but it does show this, how in the spiritual realm of life, the devil partners with our flesh. The devil partners with the sin that already exists inside of us. Think about it. When we sin in our lives, it's not usually because the devil randomly showed up and put some sort of foreign desire in our hearts. We rarely sin and say, wow, didn't see that coming. Wow, didn't know that that, my heart wanted that, didn't know that desire was in there. We're rarely surprised by our own hearts. Most often, the devil works with things that are already within us. Things already part of our sinful nature, our flesh, that we're longing after. It could be like Judas, a bad desire, right? A love for money, a love to have the approval of someone else, or a love for some specific type of pleasure. Or it can also be a desire for a good thing. It could be a desire for love, a desire for peace, a desire for happiness. But when that desire of a good thing becomes a demand that I must have this in this specific way in order to be satisfied in life, it becomes sin. Either way, whether it's a desire for a bad thing or a demand for a good thing, the devil works with what is already in us. So while it says he put into Judas's heart to betray him, it's not that Judas just randomly woke up one morning and said, you know what, I want money today. Judas was already greedy. The devil already had a lot to work with. He just maneuvered the greed that already existed and put it into Judas' heart. How could you maybe trade Jesus in order to get some more money? But that's not all the devil does. He influences Judas's heart. He wins over so much of Judas's heart that we see what? He actually enters Judas. See it in verse 27 of chapter 13. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. As soon as Jesus hands the bread over to Judas, Satan enters into Judas. Judas has now given himself over completely to the devil. His desire for 30 pieces of silver has won his heart. Now Satan has complete reign over him as he is going to depart to go betray Jesus. But Judas is not unfamiliar with this feeling. Look back at Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him, Jesus, to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. This isn't the first time Judas has had Satan enter into him. He's actually given himself over to Satan before, even just to make the arrangement to betray Jesus. 
And now he's back at it again. And John gives us a very helpful description at the very end of the passage. Look at verse 30. After receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. John's not just telling us what time of day it is here. He's saying that for Judas, darkness has overtaken him. And it seems like also for Jesus, darkness is starting to win, doesn't it? It seems like the devil's starting to get the upper hand on things. Night has fallen upon Jesus for the last time before he's going to go to the cross. It appears that darkness will defeat the light of the world. But then that brings us to our final person to look at, Jesus. Where's he at in all of this? What's he thinking? How much does he know? Why isn't he stopping this from happening? So John tells us about Jesus in the midst of this betrayal. First, John tells us Jesus isn't surprised by this betrayal. While his disciples around him are completely lost, right? Peter's like, John, ask him who it is, right? All the disciples ask, is it me? Even after Judas leaves, right? They simply think, oh, he's just going to get food or he's going to feed, or give money to the poor. In the midst of all of their confusion, Jesus isn't confused. He's not surprised by any means. In fact, just look back at some of the things we've already seen that Jesus knows in the Gospel of John. Look at John chapter 2, starting in verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Jesus sees things that we don't, right? Jesus already knows who really is believing and who is in unbelief. Even this about unnamed people, right? None of these people are named, but Jesus knows already what's in them. Even more so about his own disciples. Turn over to John chapter 6. Look at verse 64. But there are some of you talking to his disciples who do not believe. For Jesus knew when? From the beginning. Who those were who did not believe. And who it was that would betray him. So now it's not just Jesus knows what's in these certain, these, this random unknown group of people. Jesus knows what's in Judas. He knows what's in each of his disciples. But not only did Jesus know Look at what we see at the end of chapter 6, verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You catch that? Jesus says, Did I not choose you, the twelve, And then in the next verse, Judas, one of the twelve. What does that tell us? Jesus chose Judas knowing exactly from the beginning what's going to happen. He knew who would betray him, and he still chose him. And that brings us all the way back up to our passage today. Verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you, I know whom I have chosen. So when we get to verse 21, where Jesus says, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This isn't some new revelation to him. He's known it all along. Not only known it, but chose Judas anyway to be part of the twelve, knowing from the very beginning what he was going to do. So Jesus isn't surprised by the betrayal. However, on the other side, what do we find out about Jesus? He is troubled by the unbelief. Verse 21 again. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. The same word that's used back a few chapters where Jesus is heading to Lazarus' tomb and everybody starts to question him of why didn't you come on time, right? What, what's going on here? Why would you let him die? It says Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Same thing. Their unbelief with Lazarus, Judas's unbelief with this betrayal, he's troubled by it. He knows what's going on in Judas' heart. He knows the betrayal that's about to happen. He chose him even to have him as one of the twelve, but he's not neutral about it. He's still deeply disturbed about what's about to happen. He knows the unbelief. He knows that Judas has given himself over to the devil. But he still cares about him. He still cares that Judas is walking in sin by his own selfishness, not with faith in Jesus that would give him true life. And many of us have had similar experiences, haven't we? We don't know with certainty like Jesus does what's about to happen in someone's life. But we've seen people who have walked a path of destruction for so long where we just have come to expect it, right? We've expected it. We know, we can anticipate at least what's about to happen in this person's life. Not surprised if they're going to continue, but we're still troubled by it, right? We're still bothered that this person's still headed on a toxic path for their lives. So what does Jesus do? Knowing what's about to happen being troubled by it, how is Jesus going to interact with Judas? So what we see here is Jesus extends patience and kindness to the one in unbelief. Jesus extends patience and kindness to him. Jesus could have easily, easily saw Judas enter the room at the beginning of the night and said, just go. I know what's about to happen. Just come back later tonight when I'm in the garden and do your exchange. Could have told him that, right? Could have even told Judas ahead of time, don't even bother showing up tonight. I know what you're going to do, just do it. But he doesn't. No, first, actually, before even the night begins, right, what have we seen Jesus do? He chose Judas to watch him for all three years of his ministry. See, all of these displays of miracles, all of this revealing by Jesus' teaching of who God is, these displays of God's glory time and time again, an eyewitness to all of these moments. Talk about patience, right? Three years of constantly revealing God's glory, who the Father is, time and time again, Jesus knowing all the while that this is the one who's going to betray him. But then focusing in on this night of betrayal, what does Jesus do? We saw one last week, look at verse 4. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He washes Judas's feet. Just imagine that. Now, we didn't talk much about Judas last week. Imagine this, though, right? 
Everything now we realize that Jesus knows about Judas, knows what's going to happen that night, and he still gets down on his knee and washes his feet. How much kindness is that? And in the midst of acting as this servant, look at what he says in verse 10. Jesus is talking to Peter here, right? The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why, that was why he said, not all of you are clean. Now the rest of the disciples don't get this, do they? But Judas does. Judas hears Jesus say, not all of you are clean. And Judas knows exactly who Jesus is talking about. And I would say that this is one more extension of kindness, saying, you can still turn. You could still change your mind. Right? And then we see one final extension of kindness here, right before Judas leaves. Verse 25. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Two things here. First thing, we find out a little bit about the seating arrangement. Right? Because they would have sat down and reclined at the table, a lot different than how we sit at a dinner table. But one's the disciple whom Jesus loved, which we know is likely the Apostle John is reclining against Jesus, and he turns back, he says, Lord, who is it? And Jesus dips the bread, and what's he do? Who do you hand the bread to? The person sitting next to you. And he hands it to Judas, which means what? On this other side, who's Jesus reclining against? Judas. The right and the left hand, right, are places of honor. And Judas was given a place of honor at the table on the very night that he was going to betray Jesus. So Jesus is constantly offering him this extension of kindness and even one more act as he hands the bread because that in itself, who I share this bread with first, is an act of honor and kindness. So not only his seating arrangement, but the fact that he receives bread. Jesus reaches out one final time, extending kindness to Judas, knowing all the while Judas is about to hand him over. And as he does, Satan enters him to finish this betrayal. And notice what we see Jesus do, right? Jesus orders his own betrayal. Could he have stopped him? Could he have struck Judas down dead at this very moment if he wanted to? Could he have never chosen Judas in the first place? Certainly he could have. But what's he do instead in verse 27? After he had taken the morsel, Satan entered in him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. That's an imperative, by the way. That's a command. Jesus looks right at him and says, you're already on the path. I've extended kindness time and time again. Go ahead and do it. But my question here is, we don't know the answer to it, who's Jesus talking to? Right? 
Uh, it's kind of a, it, it's vague for us. We don't really know. But at first we're like, well, of course he's telling Judas to go ahead and do it. But what did we just find out about Judas is that Satan entered into him. So we don't really know. But what I want us to remember here is that even the devil is a pawn for Jesus. Completing exactly what Jesus came to do in the first place. Martin Luther states it this way, even the devil is still God's devil. And that's what we find out here. If he's talking to Satan, which very well may be true, he says, go ahead, do it. You can't do it without me telling you you can do it. Like Job, right? You can't do anything without me giving you permission to go ahead and do it. So go ahead. I'm telling you. I'll order my own betrayal here. Now it can be hard for us to contemplate some of these truths, can it? Jesus, knowing exactly what Judas would do, still chose him, extended kindness to him, even then ordered him to go ahead and do it. Why would he do such a thing? Why would he... What is the purpose of any of that? And so what I want us to take a moment here at the end to see is God's purpose in the betrayal. It can be difficult for us to imagine that God would order such an event to happen, right? Because here's the reality. If God is in control, even ordering such a brutal act, an act that leads to Christ's own death, then we would have to come to the conclusion that God might also be in control of our own sufferings with a purpose. But I want to insist to you this morning that God having a purpose in this betrayal and God having a purpose in your suffering should not be a scary reality for you, but a comforting one. So let's focus on the purposes that Jesus gives for what's about to happen with Judas. At this point in the text, we're going to come back to, we're going to come back to verse 18, right? So at this point, he hasn't revealed to the disciples that someone's about to betray him, but he has revealed that not all of them are clean, that not all of them are going to follow in his footsteps as he is calling them to do. But he hasn't revealed the idea of betrayal yet. But look at what he says in verse 18. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. What is about to happen with Judas is a fulfillment of scripture, right? We saw it in Psalm 41. When Jesus, as the Son of God, was with the Father, right? Before taking on flesh, he was with the Father in the Old Testament, He watched the words of David of Psalm 41 being penned. Not knowing the entire time, David is not the only one who's going to experience betrayal. But one day, as the son, he would take on flesh and experience a very similar, even worse, betrayal. All of it for what purpose? Purpose number one, to fulfill Scripture. God will be faithful to do everything he said he would do. And we see many of these fulfillments from the Old Testament, right, come to fruition in Jesus himself. Not only that Jesus was betrayed, but that he would die for our sins, as stated in Isaiah. That he would give us a new heart, as it said in Ezekiel. That there would be a new covenant established, like Jeremiah 31 talks about. Now remember this, if God is faithful to all that he has promised... 
even if it means the crucifixion of his own son. Won't he be faithful to everything that he has promised you and me as those who belong to him through faith in his son? If God's faithful even to the point of it means killing his own son, sending him to betrayal and suffering and death, he'll be faithful to what he's promised to do for you and me who now have been brought to life through his son. Which brings us to the second purpose of this betrayal. Look at verse 19. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. As we see God faithful to all that he has promised, we begin to see Jesus with more clarity as the Son of God who takes away our sin and gives us eternal life and what's meant to happen. Jesus says here to his disciples that you may believe, which they already do in some sense, right? He told them just when he was washing the feet that some of them are clean, right? So there's already belief, faith in many of them. But what's he really saying here? He wants their belief, their faith to grow. After his death and resurrection, right? He says after, before this takes place, so that when it does take place, right? He's saying, I'm telling you things beforehand so that after they happen, you can look back and see me with greater clarity and have your faith increased because you see in a greater way who I am now. Specifically that what I am or I am he. And this is exactly what happens. John has already told us in his gospel, after Jesus' death and resurrection, the disciples looked back on these things and they remembered what Jesus had said. It's stated specifically like about when Jesus talks about, right, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. His disciples, after the resurrection, look back and say, ah, that makes sense now. And the same thing, after his death and resurrection, they look back at this moment and say, I see what was going on there. And it's meant to stir their faith to grow. How much more should we? We're not the disciples in this sense, are we? We've already seen everything that happens. We read everything that has already happened. We see Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation. How much more should we have our faith increased? As we look back now and see that even the betrayal of of Jesus by Judas was not outside of Jesus' control. In fact, Jesus tells Judas to go ahead and do it. How many of you are thankful that Jesus told Judas to do this? Are you thankful? Right? In that moment, it's like that's undesirable, right? That's what his disciples are thinking. But but how many of us now looking back say, I'm thankful that Jesus told Judas to go ahead and get it done? It produced much more than we could ever imagine. By this very betrayal, Jesus dies for our sins, is raised from the dead, defeats the devil, defeats death, saves us, gives us new life, and promises us eternity with him. If Jesus can be trusted in even ordering his own betrayal, can't he be trusted with any amount of suffering that you could ever face? So brothers and sisters, I want to urge you this morning to assess your faith. Whatever suffering you face, whether it be your own version of betrayal in life, an illness you can't seem to escape, a job you're struggling to enjoy, a loss of some sense you can't seem to get past, you can be sure of this. You can trust Jesus with it. 
If God has prevented you from getting somewhere that you wanted to go, if God has taken you out of somewhere that you enjoyed being at, or if God has put you in somewhere that you thought you never wanted to be, He has a purpose in doing so. And His purpose is this, that your faith in Him would increase. That you would look to Him more, trust Him more, and be made more into the image of His Son. In fact, even when you're not suffering, that's God's purpose for you. No matter where you're at in life, God wants you to trust Him for your faith to increase, for you to grow in godliness. And I hope this morning to you, this passage is an extension of Jesus' patience and kindness towards you, an extension of comfort for you to realize that if Jesus uses His own betrayal for His disciples to look back on, and see Him more clearly, and have their faith in Him increased. If that's true, if Jesus is in control of even His own suffering, and can be trusted with His own suffering, He can be trusted with every moment of our lives. He can be trusted that He's using every single moment to produce something in us. Specifically, faith. So the question to you this morning is, will you increase your faith in Him this morning? Will you see Jesus with more clarity? Will you look to Him as the one who even was in control of His own betrayal and His own suffering? All because He knew what it was going to produce. And say, even in my deepest suffering, my faith can grow. My faith can be increased because Jesus is using that to produce something in me. Specifically, that I would be more like him. Will you trust him like that? Will you increase your faith in him no matter what your life situation is? Let's pray.